supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. So welcome into Spooky South Coast. Again, I'm Tim Weisberg. With me is science advisor Matt Moniz. Uh, the silent assassin Matt Costa is not with us because he has to work on Saturday nights. But we have a great show. Uh, we do talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. And see, that's where I redid the intro because we weren't recording for a podcast. So, <laughs> but uh, we are going to be having a fabulous show tonight with our guest, uh, Sandy Schlosser. She writes the spooky series of books and uh, also runs what might be Chris Balzano's second favorite website behind SpookySouthCoast.com, which you would expect that maybe it'd be his website, MassCrossroads.com or GhostVillage.com, but no, it's uh, it would be this website, AmericanFolklore.net. And uh, so let's talk with Sandy. Uh, Sandy Schlosser is the author of the Spooky Series by Globe Pequot Press, as well as the Ghost Stories deck by Random House. She's been telling stories since she was a child when games of Let's Pretend quickly built themselves into full-length tales acted out with friends. A graduate of both Houghton College and the Institute of Children's Literature, Sandy received her MLS from Rutgers University while working as a full-time music teacher and freelance author. And she really is the go-to source when it comes to uh, folklore uh, and the website is amazing it's such a great collection of stories so let's bring her on right now good evening sandy how are you hi tim how are you oh i'm doing very well spooktacular as we say here on this show <laughs> well i can't blame you my my uh pet bird is named spooky and so is the spirit uh, the series so it's one of my favorite words that that's a good uh that's a good name for sure yeah, you may hear her in the background. She insisted upon being part of this interview. That's perfectly so. <laughs> fine. I think we've had animals on before. I mean, we have Moniz every week. Yeah. <laughs> and as long as you feed, as long as you don't feed them after midnight, you don't get them wet. Usually we're okay. <laughs> Luckily, I am house trained. Barely. I have to put fresh papers down before every show. But uh, yeah, that counts. <laughs> So I, I have to say, you know, I know that uh, Chris Balzano, our content director, uh, he doesn't gush about guests very often, but uh, he has been gushing about your work uh, for years now. And it's, it's very interesting because for, I don't know, for such old stories that you share on your website, I mean, you're also one of the oldest websites out there sharing them. Uh, so you're, you've kind of become internet folklore unto yourself. Now, I hadn't realized that, and usually I'm pretty good at following the trend, but I suppose it's harder when it's you, you know, <laughs> to follow true. your own self. <laughs> so uh, d- let's just talk a little bit, though, about how you started compiling all these stories and, and, and putting them on the website. You know, it's funny. Folklore was something that my dad used to use as, to entertain us when we were little kids, mm-hmm. and I had no idea at the time that that, of course, was going to have a big part of my future. I just loved the stories. Um, was getting my master's degree, was working on an MLS, and wanted to always, right from the beginning, this is, I graduated in 98 with my MLS, and I really, really, really wanted to be on the web. And our last assignment for my Internet class, and believe me, that was pretty forward thinking, was having an Internet class in those days, was find a gap on the Internet and create a website. And, of course, I was a freelance writer, and I'd been looking all over the Internet for folklore stories, and because and, I'd read that 
a lot of publications liked to have short stories like that, and I couldn't find a single solitary one that had a story from every single state. And that was the genesis of the whole idea. I said, well, I can't find them. I can find, like, an Alaska story on the Alaska website, but not anywhere that consolidates the United States folklore. So I had an assignment, and so it was a legitimate reason to sit down and publish myself, and that was before blogging. So I guess, in a way, I was one of the first bloggers because I, I published my own set of 50 stories, which grew rapidly. I think it's over 400 or 500 stories on the site at this point. It is that, it's um, amazing I, how many were on there. <laughs> it, it amazes me, too, sometimes. Well, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm like, I'm glad it did it over a series of years and not just a day. <laughs> it does uh, mention, too, that a lot of the um, stories that are on the site do appear in the Spooky series. Is the series kind of been compiled just from stories that you've collected from the website, or now is it that you're putting the books together and then sharing those stories on the site? I mean, how, how does that work? Kind of a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, the first couple of books probably sprang more from the web material. Um, and from, from just research, I, you know, most of them were in the area, either regional books or places I've traveled to, or I grew up in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania region, so um, those books were like a shoe-in. I grew up with all that folklore and just retold it. Um, but then as the Spooky series grew, um, the website's been growing with it, and we needed to have at least samples of the story, so a lot of times I'll put excerpts up from some of the Spooky series that gives the book series promotion, because they're not the full stories from the book, but it gives people a taste of what each of the books is like. So they, they've been feeding each other back and forth, and I put 25 to 30 stories in each book, and I collect about six to 800 stories from each state. Wow. Minimum. So there's so much leftover material. <laughs> it's got to go somewhere. So it ends up on a website. And it, it does it, it does go hand in hand though because you are giving people kind of uh, a little bit of a taste of the stories, uh, and then in, at the same time, you know, if they want to get more in depth, they can get the books. And it, it's it, it's one of those uh, rare kind of hybrid relationships where you know the the web benefits this old form of storytelling because I think a lot of folklore doesn't really translate very well uh, to the web because so much of it was shared orally. Yes, but actually the web is, um, I find it a medium, a medium for folklore that's absolutely fantastic because it's one of the few times where once you've got social media really up and running, social media in many ways is exactly the way people would be if they were meeting, you know, at the well 300 years ago, you know, and suddenly everybody would be drawing water from the well and sit around telling stories, and mm-hmm. now they're sitting around on Twitter and in Facebook and stuff telling stories. Well, except now you have to tell the stories in 140 characters or less. <laughs> well, you know, then that's when email and websites and bloggers start pulling in because they, you know, it's astonishing if you really start looking. Um, I, I always, always enjoy the internet because the internet kind of gives me leads that I might not find in other places or are much harder to find. You know, it's nothing still like wandering into a town and having dinner at the local diner, and the next thing you know, you start talking to the waitstaff or the people at the bar. And, you got 150 leads and really great stories, that, a lot of them that people have ex- actually experienced themselves, which is my favorite way of doing it. Uh, and I'm but guessing, a lot of times I get tips about what towns to go to <laughs> from the Internet. I was say, I'm guessing that happens to you quite a bit. That uh, You know, I find since uh, we've been doing this show for, for uh, about seven years now, that uh, now when I go into a place, I, I can't help but within you know a half an hour of being there, 
I hear my first ghost story about the place or about the town. And I'm sure the same mm-hmm. thing happens with you where, you know, you're, you're visiting somewhere and you're just passing through a town, stopping to get something to eat. And before you know it, you've got the notebook out and you're jotting down these little tales. Well, it's funny. One of the places that we went in Gettysburg, my sister and I just went for dinner and um, <laughs> sitting in the booth watching the candles start going crazy as if, you know, there was a breeze in the booth with us. And I'm going, wow. hmm, well, this is interesting. I'm just trying to have dinner, really. <laughs> You know, I didn't even ask for stories, you can't but it was interesting. No, you can't. You can't. And it was it was my sister's looking just looking at me, going, "Why is the booth so cold?" I said, "Just don't ask. <laughs> just don't ask. Let's <laughs> not go there. I want to enjoy my food." <laughs> but but too though, it's, it's got to be. Um you know, rewarding too, though, when you can find these stories pretty much anywhere you go, because there's probably people that want to collect these stories, and so many of them have kind of just died off, or or they're no longer being passed around. Uh, so to be able to to have them, I mean, you must be honored to to be a repository for all these stories. I love finding the old ones. You know, I mean, the new ones have a generation of people who are really industriously recording them on everything, as I said, from blogs and the internet to you know, um, all of the shows on the paranormal, both the audio, the video, and the television shows. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like the, the the new stuff is getting a lot of coverage, but the old stuff is becoming lost, and I hate that because the stories are fantastic. I mean, I remember Spooky New Jersey, I'm digging around and finding, you know, that there's a great ghost story that Washington, apparently, you know, George Washington saw ghosts during the first time he was um, in New Jersey oh, really? during the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. It was a story, actually, and it was because this, uh, New Jersey is my home state that I grew up in, um, and I'd never heard of it, but it was a ghost that was in within probably about 20 miles of my hometown of a little girl who had died in, a, in an accident in a cistern, and she would start appearing. People would see her ghosts warning of danger, and he was in a, a big snowstorm coming up back to Morristown and saw a little girl walking through the snow. Wow. And, you know, he's thinking, oh, my gosh, it's like terrible, blinding snowstorm. She's going to die. So he had his man stop the coach, and they got out and couldn't find her. So they stopped at the first house to say, hey, listen, we couldn't find this little girl, but she was out in the snow, and we're worried about her. Can you send a servant or somebody to find her? And the lady said, no, that's that's a ghost. And uh, George Washington is still trying to assess this when this woman's son, who was a patriot, came running in to say that there was a British ambush that they just disrupted that was laying in wait for Washington. So the little girl's ghost had appeared to Washington to warn him of danger ahead, and uh, it's just a crazy story. It was uh, he, uh, the version of it, the book was told um, from the viewpoint of Arnold from Arnold's Tavern, which was the first headquarters in the first year of the war, um, rather than the second one, which is the one that's now a state park in New Jersey. Um, but Arnold's Tavern, um, Washington's told the story at the tavern. And the guy remembers speculating and, you know, kind of ends the story speculating, you know, what would have happened if Washington had actually been killed in the first year of the war? Oh, yeah. And, and not to mention, I mean, we, if, if George Washington told the story, we have to believe him because he could not tell a lie. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not from the cherry tree story, at least. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if uh, if he ran inside and he got his wooden EMF detector, you know, and uh, his, uh, his, his wooden thermal camera and he went out there and investigated. No, probably not. <laughs> Well, he might have, like, had other tools. Spellbooking candle comes to mind, but I don't think he'd want to exercise a ghost that helped him out. 
<laughs> now, uh, we should probably break down some of these definitions. Uh, and, of course, on your website, AmericanFolklore.net, you do a great job of this, especially with helping uh, in the classroom. But w- we throw around a lot of these tales, myths, legends, folklore, uh, tall tales, urban legends. L- let's kind of break these all down and kind of describe for people exactly what falls into what category. I mean, wh- let's start with what exactly a folk tale is. Oh, heavens, you're going to test my memory, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, folktales are, the, the thing about a folktale is that's probably one of the widest definitions that is out there. It's basically just a story that's been part of a story or a legend that's part of the oral tradition of a group. So basically the definition is it's a story that's being told out there, being told more frequently than it's being written down, um, usually it's being passed down from one generation to the other, and here's this is the important thing. This is this is why we have alligators both in New York and other big cities in the sewers, is that it is customized to the area that you're in, mm-hmm. um, and that's actually pretty darn critical, especially by the time you get to you know the um, the stories like the ghostly hitchhiker, which pretty much every state has their own variation or multiple variations on the theme, and I've seen them go far back as hitchh- people hitchhiking, you know, rides on on horses and wagons and stuff before we even had cars. So, you know, the, that story's been around for a long time and has been customized, and, of course, it's probably based on other true ghost stories that have, over the years, have taken on characteristics of, of the, the hitchhiker, the hitchhiking ghost-type story. So folktale is almost like the oral tradition. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you can't, besides folklore, that's the broadest of the definition. And and I've always uh, thought that uh, tall tale is, is kind of the similar... Uh, type of a story but it always involves like a superhero type figure you know somebody who is just beyond human capacities yes tall tale is actually probably one of the forms that is is truly american in origin a lot of the other ones come from multiple cultures over the years but tall tales were really invented here in the united states and um as far as i know in my research if somebody else has heard something else i'd love to hear it but all I've been able to find is that tall tales kind of began in the United States, and they were the larger-than-life heroes. So it's your Paul Bunyan, Pecos Bill, who was the ultimate cowboy. You know, you had your ultimate steel miner man um, in the Pennsylvania Steelworks. And, you know, everybody seemed at, a, at one period of time to have kind of invented their own larger-than-life hero. John Henry, who was a real-life man, mm-hmm. is still could be considered a larger-than-life type hero when, you know, that steel-driving man who went up against the machine and won but died trying. You know, it's, and, it's an amazing, very American feeling to these tales. And, and now with the tall tales, do they necessarily have to have uh, a moral to them, or can they just kind of be about the exploits of this character? It's, it, they, they feel a lot more fun than mm-hmm. moral. You know, it's like Pecos Bill rides a, toma- a tornado. You know, they're just larger-than-life tales. I mean, they're, they're all based on true-type characters, but it is the ultimate of the character. Um, you know, so the river ultimate riverboat rider. You know, um, Davy Crockett loved to tell tall tales, and he made them up about himself. So he made up his own folklore about himself. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, there's a lot about him. So, <laughs> yes. I mean, he's called his wife in the folk tales is Sally Ann Thunderan Whirlwind Crockett. I mean, boy, that's a lot of fun to say in front of a crowd of little kids. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Not so much fun really? though when you're when you're calling her, you know, at night to to come to bed. You know. <laughs> Well, and I wonder what his true life, what his true life wife, that was hard to say, um, thought about the whole thing. <laughs> because her name wasn't Sally Ann Thunder Ann. Well, but, you know, if you're going to have a nickname, that's not a bad one to have. 
Hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'll try that. Now, and and when it comes to myths, now these are something that go uh, kind of beyond uh, you know th- these stories. I mean, these these have kind of uh, y- you know just the craziest possibilities are, are all going back into myths. It's they're always very supernatural, right? Yes, very supernatural. Often very religious. Mm-hmm. Um, they often involve the pantheons, or you know, monotheistic. If you're if you're in the Christian religion, you know, you're you're talking about the origins of man, explaining the way things came about. Um, they often involve gods, god gods goddesses, depending on on religious belief. And um, do you, are you familiar with the term archetype? Oh yeah. 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 We've actually been talking um, about it in the last few weeks here quite a bit. Excellent, excellent, because that's the best way to explain it is um, when you're talking about, you know, religious concepts that are hard for a person who is incarnate, basically, in a human body to understand, the stories of the mythology will help you to grasp images and archetypes that are out there that you know, almost have to be understood more with the soul than with the mind, because at a certain point your mind just kind of blows up <laughs> after too many dimensions. Mm. You know, you can't understand it. Um, and the stories, the myths, they, they tend to help a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why people, as they grasp and grapple with the beyond, um, have a whole mythology that builds up into religions and experiences that they're having. So, well, that's myths. One of the terms that gets thrown around quite a bit with myth is legend. I mean, we we always kind of say myth and legends, kind of like we say, you know, peanut butter and jelly and cheese and oh, crackers. Boy. You know, it's almost like mm-hmm. you can't have one without the other. And but but a legend is is kind of completely different from a myth. And legends can be true. Um, legends grow up around real life people. I mean, we were just talking about George Washington, and he certainly has a lot of legends around him. And many of the stories are true. There's a legend out in uh, one of the Mormon legends of the Gulf, where they were starving and, and um, the crops weren't doing well, and then these grasshoppers came flying in, was eating everything. Um, and the Gulf, the, the California Gulf, came flying in and ate all the grasshoppers, saved the crop, and so the settlers, first-time settlers, didn't perish in that winter, where they very easily could have. And there was really no going back. It was too close to the end of the season, and they would have had to go back through the mountains. So they very likely would have lost almost everybody in the settlement if it hadn't happened. Um, and that's called the legend of the goals. But it is a straight-up factual historical story, at least as far as I've been able to tell. I certainly have people who keep writing into the website saying, it's a true story, and, uh, you know, I can't believe you call it a legend. And I'm like, because legends often have at least a little bit of a basis in truth, if not are completely true. Yeah, and, and I always thought that a legend could be something that, um, you know, could be completely true, but also be uh, completely romanticized. You know, even though you're telling the true story, once it becomes a, an epic tale, it becomes a legend. Yes, yes. And you probably, I mean, I know at my day job, we certainly have many legends that roam around, even for people in upper management, you know. Um <laughs> that started off with historical base, <laughs> so and, like, and they grow a little bit larger than life over the years. Sounds like you work with some Bill Baraskis, maybe. <laughs> to Bill Baraski. But, uh, well, and now, of course, uh, the hot new term, you know, in the last, you know, 10, 20 years has been urban legend. And mm-hmm. that, I think, people don't really have a clear-cut definition of that. It gets tossed around quite a bit. Um, but, but urban legends are, are the hot new topic uh, in the paranormal. 
and they tend to be more apocryphal. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they may have a base in hor- historical um, facts, like legends do, but I think urban legends tend to really grow, um, especially with the Internet. They really grow um, in the oral tradition passed around really fast and tend to be more, they sound plausible as opposed to they are plausible. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them also still have a basis. In fact, like uh, the Texacarta murders is probably the best source of the Hookman legend. That's where most people accredit to, you know, Lover's Lane stories now, was from that series of, of true um, Lover's Lane murders down in Texas. Um, but then right after that, a whole series of those, you know, no trespassing, guys, you know, they get stranded, the guy goes to the haunted house, his body appears hung over the car, dead as a doornail with a no trespassing sign on his chest, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> don't park. That's the legend. And, you know, parents in the 50s especially would have been very happy to um, encourage their children not to, oh, sure. to park. So that that's, uh, I think, definitely a big example of an, alert, uh, an urban legend, and there are many, many more. And you can just imagine somebody loses one of their, um, you know, an iguana or something into, into or even a an alligator into the sewers, and it's probably a little small thing at the time, but the legend grows of the alligator in the sewer. You know, and I think and that it goes through from one place to another until every town has one. I think part of the growth of of urban legends is there's there's some degree of one-upsmanship amongst oh, the people who are sharing these stories. Oh yeah, well, and and the creeped out factor. Mm-hmm. You know, oh my gosh, that's creepy. I mean, you see urban legends all the time, even that it just surround you know, uh, viruses, you know, oh my gosh, don't download this, don't go to this website, don't do this, because it's, you know, a virus. What's the guy who's always offering you, you know, if you sign up for this bank account or something, you're going to get $50 million because it was left to you unexpectedly. Oh, that Nigerian <laughs> prince? prince? Yeah. Yeah, no, that yeah. one. <laughs> I only get variations on that about three times a week. Only, only <laughs> like, three Man. times a week? I get them like 17 times a day. Oh, hey, um, man. Maybe I just have really sucker, well yeah, sucker printed on my forehead. but Well, know. it might be that I have a better spam filter. <laughs> well, I promise you, since since you didn't take advantage of it, when my money comes through, I'll share it with you. Oh, thank you. Because I I'm, really appreciate that. I'm expecting it any day now. <laughs> so far. I mean, he already took the initial withdrawal from my account, so I assume that means he's going to make good on the $20 million that's going to be coming oh. later on. At, at yeah, least, absolutely. You tell me how that works out, okay? <laughs> at least if you're going to come up with these. I mean, you know, like you're saying, you know, urban legends, they sound plausible. So if you're going to come up with one of these email scams, at least make it sound plausible. You know, yeah, uh, really? and. 5000 instead of 50 million. <laughs> yeah, well, and why is it that, you know, I have to give you $2,500 right now for you to give me 25000 later? You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Just make it plausible. Come have up with a better story. Have you seen what's going on with the banking these days? Yeah, well, still. I actually got an email from uh, our friends, the Starborn Twins, the other day, Monies, yes, uh, in I my junk that. mail. Did you get that one? Yeah. They, they were broken down and needed us to wire them some money? And, and they, they were needing their passports. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy! Well, in we are. Florida. <laughs> well, you have to, you know, dual citizenship. That's that's a joke. But uh, we are coming up on the end of the first hour, even though it was only a half an hour. Thanks, uh, torrential downpours. But uh, we are coming up on the end of this first hour of the show, and uh, we'll be going into the news. Uh, we're going to take a. It's probably about a six-minute news break, Sandy. And then when we come back on the other side, I'd like to get into some more of these uh, urban legends. I know that there's one. From right here in New Bedford, Massachusetts, that's in your uh, spooky Massachusetts book. 
So uh, maybe oh, yep. we can we can right. talk about that. And then I also want to get into the idea of ghost stories with you because uh, you, you talk quite a bit about some of these ghost stories on your site. And I, I want to kind of get into the, the deeper meaning behind some of these as well with you coming up. And, of course, people can join in the conversation by calling in 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. Email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. And, of course, you can also uh, jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. We have a good good crowd in the chat room tonight, Moniz. Yeah, I got about a dozen or so people. And uh, some questions popping up that we can ask in the next hour? Or? Yes, I do. All right, excellent. So we will uh, we will do that. All that and more. Now, coming up during the break, if you would like to uh, check out a few websites, you can go to LegendTrips.com. Uh, we're kind of talking about these legends here on the show. And Legend Trips is the website of our events company. We're going to be coming up with our Haunted History Night 2012 on October 20th. And that is going to be a, a phenomenal night. Tickets are $99. You get dinner. You get lectures. You get a live taping of 30-odd minutes that you can be part of the studio audience for. it. Well, the... Uh, meeting house audience for it because that's I think where we're going to be filming it. Uh, you also get to investigate for hours and hours a tavern built in 1690 and uh, a church, a schoolhouse, and a meeting house that are all from the 1800s. So uh, you have a chance to really get out there and, and touch some history for yourself and uh, maybe even have a paranormal experience possibly as well. So uh, legendtrips.com is the website to purchase those tickets. It's coming up on October 20th in Wareham, Massachusetts. Get your tickets now because they will go fast. And uh, also, of course, the Experience of Speak event is coming up. Uh, that is uh, September 8th. It, and it's happening in? Maine. Maine. Uh, is it is it Gorham, Maine? I believe so, yes. And it's uh, it's two, tw- $20.12 for the tickets. That is correct. And if you want to find out more about that, just go to starbornsupport.com and you can find out more information there. And also look up Starborn Support on Facebook. That's where they always keep putting up all the information. But, uh, of course, the big featured speaker of that event is Matt Moniz. No, I'm just kidding. Travis Walton. So, uh, and, of course, uh, Peter Robbins is going to be there and, and Christian White. and There's going to be a whole bunch of uh, people there. Yes. Yeah. So you definitely want to go check it out. It's a, it's a who's who in the UFO community. So definitely check that out. And, uh, again, we are taking a break now for the news. But when we come back, we'll get more into the idea of folklore, especially American folklore, with our guest, uh, Sandy Schlosser, tonight. And check out her site during the break as well, uh, AmericanFolklore.net. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, man. What? You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on. It's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Makeshift open. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. See see how we have to do things, Monies? Yes, I do. I don't understand what's going on anymore over here. Things have just changed so much. I don't deal well with change, but we are back in the comfort of 
uh, the final hour of discussion here on Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz. The silent assassin Matt Costa is somewhere out in that wide world. Making ribs. I miss him. Don't you? I, I do. I really I, do. I really haven't talked to him in, in weeks. Uh, we, we emailed uh, about a, a situation that happened over the course of the week. Uh, and uh, he's like, oh, crap, I've been meaning to call you about that. <laughs> it's like we just you know, we used to see each other every day, and now I, I miss his face. And I never thought I'd say that about another man, but I miss his face. I never say that about you when I don't go. Well, that's, you. that's a given. I miss talking with you and communicating with you and hanging out with you, but not your face. Understandable. Usually I can't miss it because it's right there. Yeah, that's a good target. All right, welcome back to the show where we're going to be talking for the rest of this hour with our guest, Sandy Schlosser. If you want to check out her website, again, it's AmericanFolklore.net. It's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. So if you go there, uh, you can't miss uh, the slide with Sandy on it and just click on that or click on where it says Read More and it'll take you right to her site. And you're just going to get lost in the site. I mean, and I mean that in a good way, not like it's hard to navigate. It's so easy to navigate. But you're just going to get lost in the wealth of stories that are on there. And then, of course, once you do uh, start reading some of those stories, you're going to want to start purchasing the spooky series of books where a lot of these stories are collected. And it's probably, you know, it's probably going to take over your life. Listen, reading all these stories, like like Chris Balzano, it, it definitely took over his life, and uh, it, it definitely gave him a new direction in in his learning and his approach. And to me, it it seems like you know, for something that I would have laughed at four or five years ago, it seems now that you almost can't investigate the paranormal today without having a background in some of these stories of folklore, because really all you're doing is contributing. Uh, to the ongoing tale of some of these stories. And, and Sandy, I'm sure you hear from paranormal investigators from time to time who tell you uh, that they've investigated some of these stories that you're writing about and, and they seem to find that they are uh, they go beyond just uh, folklore. Yes, sometimes, uh, well, and some of this, you know, I don't always mark them on the site whether they're a true story or not um, unless you know the key, which is if you go into the word family stories mm-hmm. and you're getting a lot of stories that are either shared with my family as true stories or have happened to people in my family. They're all true paranoia, paranormal stories, some of which have actually happened to me. So as I go about my research, um, they do kind of sneak their way into the website. Have you found that that's the case, that uh, when you've dipped your toe in this water, uh, it, it kind of opened up the door for, for other experiences to happen to you? Oh, I, I think it's probably was going to be happening anyway because of the nature of my family. We... Um, we're um, German, Schlosser being the last name that probably gives that clue away. And um, in the German paranormal tradition, which goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, it gets passed down um, through what they call hex doctors or powwow doctors. Mm-hmm. And that's coming straight down my paternal family line. So all of my sisters have it. I have it. My father has it. My nephew has it. My grandmother had it. My great-grandfather had it, you know. So uh, I probably shouldn't have been surprised that when my career took me in this direction that things would start to happen because it was already kind of latent in the system. But, you know, I mean, I don't think you can visit sites that really have true supernatural activity on them and not be touched by it unless you're just totally closed off. Right, and, and you are you know you are contributing to that legend just by sharing the story. You are contributing to the ongoing tale of it just by... Uh, keeping it up there for people to read. Yeah, 
Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I do as a folklorist is, you know, these are true stories. A lot of folklore starts as true stories. I have an iPhone and it switched to keypad. Oh, I thought maybe the bird was uh, trying to get on the other line. <laughs> she might have been trying. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that's one of the reasons, like, the devil on Washington Rock for, um, you know, anybody who's listening who wants to take a look on the website. That was one of my very first paranormal experiences. So the girl in the story was me. <laughs> I don't tell it as me. I tell it as the girl. And so that story now is, is you know, is being told all over Washington Rock and, and Central New Jersey. And I'm sure embellished and changed and becoming part of the legend of Central Jersey. But it was a true story. But that must be weird for you to, to have to kind of, uh, you know, to have a personal experience like that and then have to remove yourself from it in order for it to stand out there on its own as folklore. Because if you keep yourself involved in the story, then it's just your story. And it doesn't seem like it's in that realm of folklore yet until you release it and let it go and kind of become its own living, breathing entity. Yeah. And and there are stories that are just, you know, private to the family. And there are stories that, you know, just deserve a bigger audience. And, they, you know, once they're told, people will grab them and retell them and become part of the oral tradition because that just seems to be the way that we communicate to tell stories to each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, so the ones that are, you know, the ones that I think deserve to go into the history and the folklore are the ones that I release. Now, I do have to ask you this because this is something that we talk a lot about off the air amongst ourselves. I mean, that's the nature of society today. I mean, are we, uh, do you find that we're more of a connected society? I know you talked about social media, you know, helping keeping these things going in, in, in the uh, first hour, but do you find that we're more connected as a people or do you find that we're more, you know, we've got our heads stuck in our phones and our gaming devices and our iPads and our laptops and we're not really interacting with one another or is it just that it changed how we interact? I think it's the answer is going to be see that it changes how we interact, but I think we're going through a growth period right now. Mm-hmm. So I think it's probably kind of BNC is that we haven't fully figured out how to integrate the technology into our lives in a way that allows us to be, you know, so it gets in the way sometimes. It gets in the way of face-to-face interactions. And then people have to pull back and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm spending way too much time on the computer, or, you know, on the phone and stuff. So we're more connected and less during this transition period. I think once we get to the point where technology is just something that is the tool that it's supposed to be for connecting and we can balance better as a society where to draw the line between face-to-face and, you know, being connected via Facebook, which mm-hmm. is really not the same thing, um, then then I think it will evolve into, in, into just being the next phase for us, just like we had to get used to going from horses to cars, you know. And bad roads to good roads, you know, and the connectedness of that. It's funny that you mentioned, you know, Facebook is an example because I was thinking about this this week and that's, uh, you know, we're, a lot of people become friends with people that they knew in high school on Facebook and you hear this phrase quite a bit. Oh, so-and-so was kind of a jerk in high school, but I, I like them all right on Facebook. You know, they're really funny and they're always, you know, commenting on my photos and everything. And it's like we don't we don't realize that they're able to remove themselves from themselves by being behind a keyboard. So they could still be that same jerk that you went to school with, but now they have that self-editing feature while they're typing things out and they can read it before themselves. So they could be the same person. You're not really getting an idea of who that person is anymore when technology is getting in the way. Yeah, 
you're you're um, you're not getting the spontaneous person, and you're not getting the visual cues that you would when you're face to face. That's true. And um, that's that's something I think that uh, it worries me. These digital natives, the ones who are growing up this way, you know, because I'm not sure how many of them. I think it's going to be a harder transition for them when they begin to realize that. Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm in touch, but I'm not. That's kind of what I was meaning by the um, by that divide that we're in right now, where where we haven't quite as a even as a nation figured out where the balance point is for this. Well, I can tell you, I, I got a little bit of a warm, fuzzy feeling this week about it, uh, about it this week. Uh, that's because uh, I'm a sports writer for my day job, and I, I have to communicate with a lot of high school and, com- and uh, college athletes for the different stories that I write. And I'm working on a feature where, you know, when I talk to the kids and I say, you know, two, three, four years ago it was, uh, can I have an interview with you? And it was usually like, well, can you just email me some questions and I'll write my responses and send them back because, you know, I don't really have time and, you know, I, I don't have time to talk on the phone and email is just easier for me. And now it's become more of, you know, well, I'd like to Skype and, and talk to you via Skype. But can you turn your camera on so that we can look at each other and see each other face to face? So, you know, there may be technology as the conduit to it, but we, maybe we are starting to get back to that face to face human interaction. It's just we can do it in a, in a different way. Yeah, and if you watch Star Trek and everything else, the generations that we're moving towards, this is because the people who are writing Star Trek are the people who are envisioning the future for us, mm-hmm. you know, have always been face to face. You know, you turned on, you know, unless you didn't want people to know what was going on. They always had, you know, put it on screen, you know? Sure. And then you were face-to-face with the Klingons or whoever else you were fighting that episode. But, um, so we're, we're just getting, we're catching up to that again. I think that was just so that um, Kirk could see if they were hot. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, I'm not even going to bother with them if they, you know, if they're not hot. <laughs> oh, that's right. They don't have a really cute chick up there. Forget it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then you knew where that episode was going. <laughs> exactly. If it was some ugly dude, it was probably a battle. If it was a cute chick, well, you know. Right, and you knew that if it was a hot chick, you weren't going to be seeing a whole lot of Spock in that one. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, let's let's talk about some of the stories that are that are on the site and in the books. And uh, of course, when you click on the table of contents for Spooky Massachusetts, the one that comes up. Uh, now, I got to say, I, I've been learning a little bit about the the writing trade with writing books the last couple of years, and I know that when you're putting together a story, uh, a collection of of ghost stories, you kind of want to have a really good one right off the bat. And the first story in Spooky Massachusetts deals with right here in New Bedford. So I'm assuming yeah. this is this is probably a pretty good one. Oh, I love this one. I love this one. Um, it's kind of got all the elements of both an old-time story and um, an urban legend. So do you want to do you want to talk about it or do you want me to? Oh, I'd, lo- I'd love for you to talk about it. <laughs> well, it's called Death Omen. Um and the way the story is written for the book and the way that, you know, the story that I collected was, was that, you know, um, a girl named Jane was visiting a recently divorced friend who, you know, just needed the extra support of the friend during a hard time for her. So she's traveling down the highway. Um, and right around 9.52, she was passing the local cemetery, and she glances over and she sees this figure in the cemetery, which is, is, is like walking along, and she's like, okay, that doesn't look like a real person here, you know. It was definitely more of the ghostly persuasion. Um, but it didn't, uh, when she saw the person turn toward her, it wasn't even like the ghostly persuasion. It was more the demonic, you wow. know, twisted kind of face and glowing eyes and pointed teeth. The way she was describing it gave me goosebumps. So she, she hit the, you know, she like, she uh, hit the gas. <laughs> she's like, I'm so out of here. And the ghost chased her. 
she was terrified. The ghost chased her and, you know, was kind of keeping pace for a little while, even as the car is accelerating. So the ghost is in, if you, you know, know your local graveyard, the ghost is actually following along, basically plowing right through everything in his path. That's why she knew it wasn't a real person, because, you know, obviously a real person would be jumping over gravestones and dodging around, and this thing is coming straight line, um, kind of angling towards her. Um, so it's like coming closer and closer and following along as, as the car is speeding up. And she, um, she, it was as she basically got past the cemetery that, that it fell behind and she could actually see it in the rearview mirror. And the way she described it to me was like the ghost was getting, or this evil thing was getting taller and taller. I mean, you know, I don't know how much of it was her fear and how much of it was what she was seeing in the mm-hmm. rearview mirror, but it was really, really creepy. And she had looked at, as I said, she looked at the time, it was 9.52, and, um, she gets to the house, and of course her friend's like, you know, what's happening? You know, she kind of couldn't speak. She said she literally kind of slammed into the house and couldn't talk for a few minutes because it was just, she was shaking too hard to even stammer. But she uh, finally told him the story, and and um, her friend Sarah, not the real name, but her friend Sarah, for the purposes of the book, was saying, you know, what happened? And she said, I, and she told her about seeing this figure in the graveyard, and she said, you know, there's a legend of a witch you know, um, that sometimes haunts the cemetery, or a woman that was accused of being a witch, and she's considered a death omen. And um, a few minutes, you know, they got her calmed down, and about midnight, they actually, um, the doorbell rings, and a police officer had stopped by. Her parents, uh, um, Sarah's parents, had actually, not the woman who saw the ghost, but Sarah, the one who was divorced Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, suffering, her parents had died in a car accident. And, the, and they found out later that the time of death was actually 9.52 when her friend saw the death moment. Wow. Yeah. That's a great story. Totally freaky. <laughs> you know, and this was this is one of the ones where it's um, more hearsay passed along. That's why it's more of an urban legend mm-hmm. as opposed to, so because it was, it was the, the friend of a friend as opposed to a first person where, you know, there are stories in, in some of the books that are, are you know, were told to me by the person who experienced it. But that particular one is, is what I would consider a hearsay story passed along. Passed along close enough that there's probably some truth to it. I don't know whether the truth is of the story of the legend of the witch in a death omen mm-hmm. or the story of a person who had some kind of a weird experience and then something deadly happened to them right afterwards and they connected the two. You know, it, it could be either way or it could be very close to what was actually told. Well, I can, I can tell you right now that dozens of our listeners right now are probably sitting at home thinking, I know exactly which cemetery they're talking about. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, hey, if you've had an experience uh, w- with that witch and, and you've experienced a death omen, give us a call, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420, or you can just call in if you have any questions or anything that you want to discuss with our guest tonight. And, uh, Sandy, one of the things that I love the best about uh, this new focus on folklore that I've discovered in, uh, in in my own research and my own way of paying attention to, to the paranormal world is that it, it's somewhat liberating to not really have to worry about the proof anymore, to no longer have to hear a story about a ghostly encounter and want to go check it out for myself and either prove or disprove the story, to just kind of take it at face value and enjoy it for what it is. And I'm assuming that proof is something that you don't really worry too much about when you're collecting these stories. You know, it's funny. I have to prove it's folktale because you're going to love this. The Spooky series is actually nonfiction. Ah. It's nonfiction because 
each of the stories is a documented folktale or a true story that I've collected from the folklore and oral tradition of our, com- uh, of our country. So they're told in a fictional style, especially to protect any of the first-person witnesses who are talking to me. Um, but that's one of the reasons why there's a huge resources section at the end of every book. Every story is researched and researched and researched. <laughs> I spent since, I guess I closed on my last book, the beginning of March. And from then till now, I've been doing all of the secondary resource research for the book that I'm about to go and do the um, in-person interviews in a few weeks out to Yellowstone in Wyoming. Um, so I, I've been, you know, neck deep in, in research all the way up until now. Um, and in a couple of weeks, I'll be actually out out in Yellowstone and Wyoming, staying in haunted houses, interviewing people, you know, um, some of it's serendipity, wandering around to different places and, and talking to people at bars and restaurants and, you know, as I'm, as I'm viewing the wonders of Old Faithful, also collecting um, first-person accounts and stories and my own experiences. So, well, that seems like uh, quite, quite a bit of legwork in a field that you could probably just say, hey, send me your stories, and then they're going to send you kind of the basic outlines of their experience, and you could, you could jazz it up a little bit with some fancy prose, but it seems like you're going in, in kind of the opposite way, and you're trying to get as true to the real story as you can. Yeah, yeah, the real story, um, and, and the history. Um, I was just, it's funny, it's just yesterday, I think I was talking to somebody about the, the relationship between history and folklore. Um, and, and, you know, history kind of gives you the dry facts of this happened and this happened and this happened. Um, folklore, if you're collecting it hand-in-hand hand with history, including present-day history, um, tells you the emotions and the mood of the people, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, how they're responding to the historical events. So it's like the heart of the people is their stories, and history is just the facts. Um, so a lot of these stories are very old. So I need to know the history. really need to know the history. I need to feel what it felt like to live back then. I need to see where, you know, as much as possible uh, to be able to envision as I'm writing each of the stories what it looked like. Visit the spot, if at all possible. Every time I can visit a place, the story to me feels so much more real when I write it. Um, And then you lay on top of it all the stories and where they came from and how they developed, which ones were true, which ones have a grain of truth. One of the reasons why were tales so popular. You know, what was it about sitting around a campfire at night, the cowboys wanted to talk about the ultimate cowboy. And right. they have to yeah. those stories. You know? So once I put all of that together, now it doesn't mean when I get to the story itself, I don't want to tell it. You know, the way a person would sit down around a campfire or, you know, a cup of coffee, uh, you know, having a cup of coffee, like I do now, and say, you won't believe this, but here's what happened. You know, that's the way those stories have to be told. That's the way they're, they were meant to be told. You know, you can't capture that in, in a history book. Or if you do, you had a remarkable history teacher. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing, though, is is uh, so much of the personality of the events is removed when you're just regurgitating facts. Mm-hmm. And that's why one of the more fascinating um, aspects of history, it, at least in my experience, was always psychohistory. You know, to kind of uh, delve into the, the thoughts, the moods of the people of the time and, and to really appreciate what the time was like. And, and these stories certainly do that. The folklore stories give you the mood of the people at its time at the time and and even to some degree some of these other stories you know like like the fables uh that you talk about a lot on the site and the fairy tales they kind of give you an idea of what people were into at the time one of the things that we've been kicking around here on the show and my colleague matt moniz is a is a uh you fall you've you do you describe yourself as a ufologist i know a lot of people don't like that term anymore 
I see with me. I, I enjoy ufology because it leaves physical evidence that I can. But would you? We'll call you a UFO investigator because okay. you are out there, boots to the ground when there's yeah. these UFO cases. And he also works with abductees. And I've been kind of delving more into these archetypes, and I'm thinking in my mind that the abductees of you know the abducting aliens of today are the fairies of yesteryear, you know, are the different supernatural creatures of different eras. And I'm sure that you're probably encountering a lot of these similar stories where. Uh, you know, what might have been in the 17th century was one type of creature. We see the same type of story now in the 21st century, but it's just given a different name and a different appearance. Yeah, I think some of that happens. Um, I also think that, you know, people have different vocabularies in different centuries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the more science that we discover, the more we find out we don't know. Um, so so each each year, as as, as we get more, you know, of the tools to investigate these things, we're still just on the cusp of learning, learning what's really out there. It may take us several more centuries to, you know, for, for folklore and fairy tales and fiction and fantasy and science to all kind of meet and, and explain a reality that is just, it's big. It's a big reality out there. But what fascinates me about the um, ufology is... Um, you know, when I find the really old stories, the Native American stories, um, that talk about these gods coming down or bright lights and things, and I read that, and then I read the UFO tales, you know, from today and from the last several decades, and go, huh, gee, there's something that sounds very, very familiar about this mm-hmm. story. <laughs> and, you know, some of them are centuries and centuries old. And, and I'm like, the- wow. There's no way to tell. There's no way to tell if uh, what we're experiencing is a more technological boogeyman today or if, you know, these stories from yesteryear were actually just, you know, alien visitors that were just perceived in a different fashion. Yeah. Well, I, I have one from Georgia from 18, 1870s or 1880s. I'd have to look it up. Georgia's is um, Georgia and Indiana were the two books that just came out this year. Um, but the Georgia story was um, definitely a UFO story. Um, and the guy was crossing a ford on his horse. <laughs> Bright lights, winds, you know, sees these uh, aliens coming up on the bank. He didn't even know to call them aliens, but, you know, I mean, the horse, the horse reared threw him into the river. The wind was coming down so hard from the, from the descent of the craft that the river almost went dry in a circle right around him. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was pretty darn freaked out at this point, you know. Um, and the same spot, it was fascinating loved this bit of research because the same spot had like four or five stories from several decades in the 1800s, um, all of which sounded suspiciously like UFOs to me. And it was, you know, they happened to various people, you know, some one person went through a bright light and felt like hands were touching them, another one like this guy, the horse spooked and he saw this bright light and then strange looking beings, he actually described them as being like Jules Verne, like sketches of the Jules Verne story, mm-hmm. you know, coming up on the bank and then and then disappearing, you know, leaving him basically in darkness going, <laughs> what did I just see? And where's my horse? And how do I get home really quickly when I'm in the middle of a river, you know? And, and these happen kind of within a, a concentrated time period? Yeah. So it, it was, it was a, a decade. There was about a decade of, a, of different stories, um, 18, 1880s to 1890s or 1870s to 1880s. I'd have to go back and check the resources on sort of absorbed in Wyoming right now, so the details are a little vague for Georgia. But I have it documented down, the sources that we're talking about. And it was fantastic. I'm sitting there going, 
I love this. This is almost as good as one of the, was it Washington? I think it was Washington State that had a UFO story of an alien that came and lived with a, a Native American tribe for a whole year. And this was back before the white men came. Um, and he, he said, you know, I'm going to die and I want you to put me up on the ridge. So he went into some kind of a sleep that they thought was death. They put him on the ridge and they actually saw the UFO come down and take him. You know, basically get down and grab his body and bring them back up. He must have been in some kind of a, you know, some kind of a, a put himself to sleep of some sort so that it seemed plausible that he died and they would bury him. But he has to be buried in a specific way where he could be taken up when his people came back for him. Wow. That's, yeah. Those are so, some, uh, was, definitely some interesting stories. Moniz, I was, I was going to ask you that when, when Sandy was talking about those Georgia sightings, I mean, it happened over the course of a decade. Would that constitute a UFO flap? Would that be considered a flap? Yes, it wouldn't. It also kind of coincides with just when the start of the airships were being sighted in that area. The airships started right in the tail end of the 1880s all the way up into the early 1900s. Nice. So, nice. yeah. So, the hist- like you said, you know, there's the historical basis for a lot of these stories. Yeah. Fantastic. And I mean, you know, and I love Georgia because Jimmy Carter, you know, has a, his own UFO sighting that he, you know, has on record. And and he's not afraid to talk about it, unlike some politicians these days. Yeah, I know. I love it. I love it. That was That's one of the things that I really both respect of all the work that he does with the Habitat for Humanity, but also the fact that he'll stand up for, hey, I had this experience. You know, just deal with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and he makes no bones about it. Speaking of bones, what would you say is probably the single scariest story that you've collected, uh, both uh, in writing the book and putting the website together? What what one sends a chill down your spine? Gosh, you know there there's there's actually a couple of them that send a chill down my spine. Um, you know, I, I I'm I'm a purist. I still get completely freaked out by the variations on the Bloody Mary stories. Not the uh, the Bloody Mary appears in the mirror. Mm-hmm. But the source of the Bloody Mary stories, you know, the uh, the one that basically it sounds to me a lot like one of the European fairy tales where the lady was, you know, killing the little children and, and using that to make her young. And that came over to Pennsylvania. And that story, of course, is always, it always, anytime little girls start disappearing and the witch starts, you know, getting younger and mm-hmm. more, more and more evil, that one freaks me out completely. You know, <laughs> and little nieces and nephews and, I, you know, I can really picture something nasty like that happening. Um, and then the the other version of Bloody Mary that that is in Indiana, which I had I actually somebody commented on it in the website, um, in the comments to the Bloody Mary story that I have up the short version, and um, then when I went to Indiana, I found the, the long version, which you know is, is definitely part of the lore there, but that's Bloody Mary uh, Wales, which is more of the traditional, you know, father, you know, kind of. Rounds the bend when his wife dies in childbirth, neglects his daughter, um, finally gets, when she grows up to be a young woman who looks like the mom, murders her very grisly, very terrible um, in the descriptions. And um, her ghost starts coming back and haunting the cabin and showing up in mirrors and trying to claw him to death. And he has to keep running out of the cabin and sleeping in the barn. And in the very end of the story, the ghost follows him right up to the barn. And, um, yeah, it's really really scary <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that one freaks me out that one in one last head which is michigan <laughs> and that's another one where do you know the story of bill quick no 
Um, and Tom Quick, I think Bill Quick is the father. I'd have to double-check my source, but um, Bill Quick, I believe, was the father, and his, his dad, the grandfather in the story, was killed by Native Americans in the area, scalped during, you know, this is during the time period when the relationship between the white men and the Native Americans was really going downhill because their land was being sold, you know. It's a bad part of our history. It really is. Yeah. Um, so, but Bill Quick is like, you know, doesn't matter how many we killed of you, you killed my dad. And he makes a vow that he's going to kill 100 Indians for his father. And so he is stalking them. And he's really around the bend by this time. So he's stalking people. And so the Native Americans are going missing and starting to hunt in pairs and in groups and, you know, and, um, Bill's never coming to town anymore. He's living way out in the, in the bush. And people are passing his cabin, and it, like, really stinks. And it, it, it's just, like, it's creepy, but they don't know why, because Bill never lets anybody in. Um, and his wife had died just before this incident or right after this incident. So her family was raising his son. It was another childbirth death. So his son, Tom, was being raised by him, and his dad falls ill and sends for Tom, who is now a young man. Tom comes in. And the dad says, listen, I'm dying. you got to finish my, my vengeance. Your grandfather, I said I was going to kill 100 Indians, and you've got to do it for me. I'm on 99. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? I'm not a murderer. And his father points into the back room. He walks in. It is shelf upon shelf of heads that he's taken from each of the Native Americans. There are 99 of them lining the walls in various forms of decay. It's really gross. <laughs> and there's only one spot basically in the center of the back wall that is still open. It's the hundredth head. Bill is dying before he got his last head. And, he, and um, the son runs away. He's like, no way. You know, I'm not a murderer. I'm not, <laughs> not doing it. And uh, his father dies, and his father starts haunting Tom, you know, saying, you have to do this. This is my vengeance. I need one last head. And um, it, it gets more, and the haunting gets really, really gruesome. To the point where he's basically drinking all the time, and people in town are now really thinking he's going around the bend and don't want him around. Um, because the last time, the grandfather and the father came and hunted him down at his cabin and are really, you know, driving him insane. It's really scary stuff. So Bill's, like, babbling and running out to the village and knocking on doors saying, you have to save me from these ghosts. And, of course, nobody's going to let him in middle of the night, and he's getting a bad reputation in town because, you know, he sees the ghosts everywhere. He's twitchy. He's, like, looks insane. What kind of person you, you hide from, not, not open your door to? Mm-hmm. And um, he vanishes. So the next morning, people are like, we better find out what happened to him because he was really weird. Maybe we have to put him away, you know, asylum or something. They can't find him. Um, they send their best trackers out. They see his prints going all the way back towards the house, and then it vanishes, you know, somewhere about maybe 50 yards outside of the house, and there's no sign, even the best trackers of, of his footprints anymore. And it had been a rainy night from in, in variations of the story that I've heard. So they're very reluctant because that house is just worn down and rickety and yicky and has that smell and feels really creepy, but the hunters are like, we got to be thorough. So they go into the house, even though his footprints weren't there. Um, and when they walk into the last room, of course, they're overwhelmed because there's 99 heads on the wall, except they're not. There are 100 heads on the wall. And the last one is the head of, of Tom Quick. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That's, first of all, when you when you mentioned uh, the idea of having all these heads uh, on the wall, it made me think of, I don't know if you ever saw Return to Oz. Yeah. 
but the uh, the evil queen who uh, collected heads and would like interchange her head. That that always was a freaky moment for me. And also, you know, ninety nine heads and mine is one. Sounds like it could be a good Jay Z song too. <laughs> That's true. It could be, but it's it was a. Uh that story, I've heard, I've heard versions of that story all the way out through Pennsylvania, even though the source, when I finally tracked it down, was really Michigan. Um, but people still, some of the older folks that you talk to, like in the Delaware Water Gap region, especially those who are, um, you know, more, less internet and more sit around with their friends and, you know, still swap stories and stuff, still tell the story of the Quick family. So... Well, looking at the site, too, it's not just United States stories that you have up there. You also collect stories from Mexico, from Canada, from, uh, from, you know, stories that have come over from Africa, Asia, Europe. You know, it just seems like, you know, for a website that's AmericanFolklore.net, you do get a, a good taste of the global stories. Do we see a lot of common themes from between uh, the American stories and stories from other cultures? I mean, I'm sure that some of them we absorbed when we absorbed other cultures, too, but uh, th- there must also be some common themes that go through a lot of these stories. Well, oddly enough, the, the ghost stories is, is, is definitely um, worldwide. You know, it's one of the, another one of the reasons why, you know, if you're looking for plausibility in actual scientific tests, it's not quite the same thing, but one of the things I'm looking for is I'm looking for themes that go across cultures mm-hmm. as a sign of a story that's either an archetype or a phenomenon that's really happening and should be investigated to see if it's you know there's a tr- some you know some truth that we may, may be able to grasp. And the ghost stories is one. I mean, one of the ones. That's, um, it's a true ghost story, and it's a sad one, but it's kind of a, like one of those bittersweet ones, and so it's not like the scary ones. It was from China, and um, that a Chinese girl who had come to America told me about was um, there was some tradition, I guess, that I think it was China or Japan. It was definitely the Far East, um, where the mothers are very involved with a wedding for their daughters, and they have a bunch of rituals that they go through, and I think they 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 you know decorate with flowers and they do a whole series of things. And this girl had lost her mom quite young. And her aunt basically raised her, and when it came time for her to get married, um, the aunt was taking her through each of the rituals. And she went, I don't know if it was like they were decorating a doorway or an archway. I think in my mind I I pictured it as an archway that they were decorating with flowers, and the girl had gone to see the archway that her aunt was working on. And a strange woman that she'd never met before or, you know, didn't recognize was, 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 you know, kind of arranging the flowers and making everything look perfect, and and um, the, and she spoke to the girl just for a few minutes, not much, you know, just like a, a how are you, you look beautiful, beautiful bride type thing, mm-hmm. you know, I'm so proud of you, and the girl's like, I don't have a clue who this is, but polite, say thank you. Um, the aunt comes along right at then and sees the woman and recognizes her sister, who's the girl's mother, who had come back on the day of her wedding to do the special rituals for her daughter and had actually, not just doing them behind the scenes, but actually appeared to her daughter um, in that special moment of connection. I was just like, I still get goosebumps even thinking about it. Yeah. You know, and this was, that was a true story. And, um, and, you know, you get stories like that in the United States. person dies unexpectedly. In Montana, it was, two, it was twins. And one of the girls was supposed to be coming back from Europe after summer vacation of some sort. 
and she um, the plane crashed, and she appeared to her twin, and her twin just got her plane got in early. You know, she sits on the side of the bed and she talks to her twins, you know, and, and very normal, but kind of sad, you know, and some of the things she said kind of indicated that, you know, I just wanted to say I love you, and that kind of thing. You know, stuff you don't normally say to your twin sister, you know, um, under under regular circumstances, just under, you know, tense emotional moments. And so she was sleeping and she couldn't quite figure out why her twin was saying that when her twin had just come back, you know. And found out the next morning that her sister had died, and it was her sister's ghost who had come to say goodbye. So, uh, you know, and I've had people who, you know, I, I can't obviously reveal sources or even write the stories down because some of the stories are very private um, that get told to me. And so, you know, I, I I don't talk about them very much, but I keep hearing that kind of thing. So that's a universal for me. I mean, I've heard it from so many different sources from so many people who have had family members, dear friends, who have come back to them. Most of the time, it's only like a one-time appearance. Just either reassure them or because it's a special occasion. One little girl. I sat in the classroom. In this, and I'm in the classroom, and we're all you know, telling fun, spooky stories, just like we've been doing tonight. And one little girl is sitting there, and she's got to be fourth or fifth grade. And she, she raises her hand and says, I've got a story. And she said, I, I never met my grandmother, and I always wanted to. So I started praying about it. And one day I knew I was going to meet my grandmother, and I went upstairs to my bedroom, and my grandmother was sitting on my bed. Mm. And we sat down next to each other, and we talked. Um, and so I finally got to meet her. And, I mean, she's just sitting there in the classroom, and, and I'm just looking at her, and I, I, I have tears in my eyes because she's just this She hadn't talked the whole entire time. She's just absorbing all of the stories. And then she just raises her hand and shares that moment. That her and she wasn't frightened, you know. It wasn't like mysterious winds and scary experience. And and she recognized her because her parents had shown her pictures of her grandpa, grandmother all her whole life. Um, and she just walked in and her grandmother was there. And I sat in another place with my bell choir um, for my church. I play handbells, and one of my dear friends is sitting across from me. She knows I write books. <laughs> and she lives in New Jersey. She didn't tell me the story until after speaking New Jersey went to press. Of course she didn't. <laughs> yeah, they're going, oh, yeah, I grew, up in a haunted, I grew up in a haunted house. I went, whoa, 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 Back, backtrack and tell me about this. She said every night at the same time she would see a woman walk past her doorway. She was put to bed at 8 o'clock every night, and they left the door open so in case she was scared. So she would see the woman come up and then go, she was living on the second floor, and they had a third floor, and she would go past the door and go up the stairs. And they rented out the third floor, so she, for every single night, she'd see this woman, and she thought it was the guy upstairs' wife. Well, the guy upstairs actually wasn't married. <laughs> Didn't have a girlfriend. And she said the thing about this, and you'll love this if you're a paranormal expert, um, is the dress has changed. The woman was always wearing these wonderful, fancy, almost costume-type dresses, and she said she loved it because it was always different dresses. You know, and she's a little girl. She loves the fancy. I've never heard of a ghost that changed its clothes. But this, this is somebody who, you know, this is a first-person account that I'm getting. And so she'd say the costumes were beautiful. She'd see these different dresses. She thought she had fantastic dress sense of little best. Um, and she said she did get a little puzzled because sometimes the woman wouldn't go past her door. She would come in the door and go into the closet. And so as a little girl, she was convinced that there was a secret passageway in the closet that could get 
with a staircase or something that led up to the upstairs because she thought this woman was the wife of the man upstairs. So it wasn't until they sold the house and her aunt sold it to her aunt and they moved in uh, into another place. Um, and her aunt comes by a month later and is like screaming at the father for selling her a haunted house and she's totally freaked out. So the little girl found out that the woman in the fancy dresses was a ghost. Yeah. And when she was older, they found out it was one of the uh, a boarding house across the she was in Jersey City. She lives right across the street from where the old um, black and white films were being made in Jersey City. And she was living in one of the boarding houses that was for the women and that her room was the dressing room of Pearl White, the black and white actress, before there were talkies. And that the, then when she saw later saw pictures of Pearl White, she recognized that as the woman who had been going upstairs. Oh, nice. So not just a, a ghostly encounter, but a, a famous ghostly encounter. Yeah, famous ghostly encounter. And have you ever heard a ghost that changes clothes? No, I mean, I've heard a lot of stories I've about... I've never heard of that. I, I've heard different stories about the various... Uh, kinds of outfits they might wear but never change well, lack them. thereof yeah, uh, no, well, yeah lack thereof too but this one now showed many of her costumes and the closet with her dressing room well, <laughs> at least that's so a, if you're going to be if you're going to be a ghost you got to have some fashion sense absolutely you can't, can't all be bed sheets and chains monies <laughs> did you have a question monies yeah uh, i was question my question is about portents and uh basically harbingers, harbinger spirits and things like that. Up in New England here, we have a lot of them like that. If you see, like you just told about the portent of a uh, the witch in the cemetery, there's several other famous cases up here. One, uh, one story being of um, a thing called the rake. I don't know if you're familiar with that out of... Uh, have you seen my yard? I'm not familiar with her. No, it's a, a, in other words, non-human spirits port- portenting a... Uh, thing to come. Wow. So, can you tell me one or two of the stories that you've heard? Um, uh, I'll go with the uh, story about what what's called the rake. It is usually described as a uh, person that is soaking wet and half decayed. And it will tell you about a death that's to come. Uh, a person wound up getting uh, killed in a uh, ambulance accident and drowning and uh, it's happened up in Niagara Falls and Niagara it's, Falls but but what's Slowly also interesting is that the story of this particular harbinger goes back to um, native tribes talking about the thing before the settlers even came and now wow. you know it, it's crossing cultures and you have several other accounts of Similar types of spirits doing things. A, another more famous example probably would be Mothman. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah, very familiar with that story. I actually, that's funny. I haven't written about the Mothman yet because that one really, truly freaked me out. <laughs> These days I have a pretty thick skin, but that one, something about it just like rings all of my mm. little bells. And it touches on so many different aspects of what we consider paranormal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and and it's hard to, to it's hard to decide though how much of it is true fact and how much of it is just you know a story that John Keel decided to uh, you know uh, grandize uh, for the the retelling of it. Right, right, and and it's 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 hard to know on that. Um, 
You know, it's funny, the uh, the one that I'm really familiar with is they call them, in Nova Scotia, they call them forerunners. Um, a lot of times it's the, the lights that appear, like in the case of the one I'm thinking about, which was the story, it's called Forerunner in Spooks Canada, it was a blue light. started appearing mysteriously on board a small boat that was moored every night, and it was for sale, so nobody was using it. And um, and it was a forerunner of a, um, a death that had happened there. I'm trying to remember, it was... Uh, think it was just some chap who just um, fell off a bridge of some sort, and um, no, it actually, it was a boy. It was a boy who fell off of a bridge, and it, it looked like an accident. It was actually a murder, um, and that light had for, um, the light had foretold exactly where that was going to happen, um, and they, it, it was funny. It's a crazy story because they first it starts off with a forerunner, and then the little boy is found dead. And then at the funeral, they, they suspect what's going on, so they lay the body out. And as the people pass by, um, when the murderer passed by the body of the little boy to pay his respects to the family, his wounds started to bleed. And the guy got really freaked out and, and fled, and they found out later that he was the one who had murdered the, ba- the child, and it made it look like it was an accident. Mm. So, yeah, it was... Uh, those always disturb me, especially with the little kids, I guess, you know. Yeah, any little was- kid story, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. Well, one question that we did get um, via uh, email, and you, you can email us, uh, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, but there is uh, one question about whether or not our modern ideas about the paranormal influence how it is that you write and retell these stories. That is actually an excellent question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it has to. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, this is off the cuff because, as I said, it's the first time. Um, because I, I don't think you can live in a culture with television and shows and stories and everything else and not be influenced by that culture. Um, you know, I'm informed by my culture. It's not who I am, but I am definitely informed by it. Um, but I was also raised um, in, in a Baptist church and in the Christian tradition um, as a youngster, and so I think I'm also influenced by that as well, um, going into it. And then I'm part of my family, which is, um, as I said, the German heritage. And when you have a, a Pennsylvania hex doctor as your great-grandfather with stories that I even have stories of him in spooky Pennsylvania, true stories about him in Pennsylvania of, of crazy, miraculous healings that he's done, as well as stories about him hexing people, um, you know, basically cursing people. <laughs> so uh, he, was, he was a mixed character. So I think all of those things are sort of swirling around to make who, me who I am, mm-hmm. and who I am comes out in the stories that I tell. And even in the stories that I choose to tell, because when you collect 600 to 800 stories for every book and then whittle it down to 25, you know, there's that whole process of whittling down that is also based on who I am and the stories that I choose to tell. And I think, and this is just me getting really deeply psychological here, sorry about that, it's late at night. No, nothing about that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, too, it's also going to depend on where I'm at. You know, the stories that, for me, are the archetypes that I might need to either be working through or thinking through um, will probably show up in one form or another as I grow as an individual. 
So I don't say the whole book would be like that, but I bet you there's always got to be one or two that are um, in every book that are I might not have written when I wrote Spooky New England, which was my first book, which was in 2003. And in 2012, I'm a very different person. Well, so even that lens is probably very different now. Well, uh, we, we definitely... Yeah, we we definitely uh, thank you for whatever the influences are that that uh, culminate in these stories. But we thank you for collecting them all, both uh, on AmericanFolklore.net and in the Spooky series of books. Now, you said you said you have some new books coming down the line. Yeah, I just have Georgia just came out, and um, so did Indiana. And I'm working on Yellowstone. Spooky Yellowstone will come out this time next year. So that's the one I'm actively researching. But uh, the Georgia story was the first story, just as a piece of trivia and um, for, for your listeners, is, uh, was the first book where the person that I traveled with was my sister and my nephew, both of whom um, are also descended from the same Pennsylvania uh, hex doctor that I am. And when you get more than one Schlosser in one place who have those abilities, <laughs> there's at least three stories in the book that are true stories that happened to me during that trip in one week. Wow. Yes. So, and if you read the introduction, it gives you a pretty good idea of which ones to be on the look for as true stories that were um, actually experienced to me. And actually, aside from, you know, stories that freak me out, the experience I had in Georgia, in Savannah, was probably the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. Well, then there you go. It's good, good reason to pick up, uh, pick up the book. And, uh, of course, AmericanFolklore.net is the website where you can find out all the information. You can purchase the books and, and follow along with what's going on. Thank you so much for joining us, Sandy, and hopefully you can come back and, and, and talk with us again in the future. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much. This has been very enjoyable. All right. Thank you so much, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that about does it for tonight's show. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, I think we're dealing with uh, – I think we're up against some – um, baseball next week, but we'll be on after that, and uh, we'll have all kinds of stuff to talk about with you in the world of the paranormal. I know uh, content director Chris Balzano has been putting together a bunch of great shows, and uh, I know that uh, sometime down the line we'll be having Marie D. Jones back on to talk about her new book about time travel that she's written with Larry Flaxman. So, uh, you know, I'd like to travel forward in time to let you know when that date is, but we're still figuring that out. So, Chris, put that on the calendar. Uh, we'll be back next week again. And if you want to catch any previous episodes, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. Check us out on iTunes. Uh, don't forget that during the week on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, you can watch Spirit Connections on Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. And Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock is Spooky Crossroads, which is uh, basically where Chris Balzano and I uh, just shoot the breeze about paranormal things, whatever else comes to mind. So check those out. Uh, Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. So uh, until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernaturalist.